everyone, and welcome back to Reconstruct. I'm John Rains. And I'm Dan Koch. And we'd like to open up season two by sharing where Dan and I have been regarding our own processes of deconstruction and reconstruction. And for those of you who've just begun listening to the podcast or those in need of reminding, let's briefly define deconstruction and reconstruction. Deconstruction is the process of uncovering false beliefs to which we've clung for years, of figuring out how parts of our worldview just aren't true or plausible anymore. Reconstruction, on the other hand, is the process of building a positive account of your worldview, of refining and working through the ideas you affirm rather than the ideas you doubt. John, we're back in the saddle. It feels good. Feels great. Uh, I think we should give some sort of explanation for why it has been so long over a year. Certainly. Uh, and I would say that is mostly on your end, though not something that I hold you uh, in contempt for. Of course. But in the past year, you have started a new business, moved, and bought a house, and gone through some pretty significant deconstruction, which we'll hear about later. You put all those things together, what do you get? You get a delay in coming back to the show that I think is quite reasonable. Did I get that right? Yes. Those are some of the largest events of my life that you just described. Starting a business with my wife for the first time ever beginning any sort of business, moving a thousand miles away from a place I called home, and buying a house. I mean, just one of those in a year would be big enough to shake things up, and my wife and I did all three, so I'm happy that we're back. Sweet. Well, so what we're going to do today is you're going to be talking about kind of like a really an epistemological thing of how do we know what we know and sort of going down the rabbit hole of all that. And for me, it's more an issue of where my theology has intersected with racial issues and racial equity in the United States, which is not to say it's been a political deconstruction, reconstruction. It has been a theological one. And we'll we'll get to uh, the, the content of that in a minute here. All right. So besides that aspect of your deconstruction that coincided with race, what else have you been working through and thinking about? Yeah, and we, we won't spend time on these, but just a little quick laundry list. Uh, I have been thinking and reading a lot about homosexuality and the Bible. I've been thinking and reading about postmodern interpretations of any text, including the Bible, and sort of how to think about the variety of interpretive options. I've been thinking about the connection between individual psychology and theological claims, which we actually will get into a little bit with your answer. Yeah. I've been thinking about the relationship of Christian thought and modern science. So, you know, just some light thinking and reading over the past 14 months. Yeah, of course. So your latest season of deconstruction, how did it all begin? Yeah, so the so the item I wanted to highlight today is this issue of race and Christianity, specifically the African American church and how I as a white Christian found myself thinking about it. And let me just preface this by saying I'm not an expert on this issue. This is sort of a layman's take on what I've been noticing about myself. And I think that I'm uh, at the beginning of a journey, but I really have seen movement that I can point to specifically in the last year. And so that's why I chose this. So let, let me start with where I was. And this is sort of me as a 18 to 22 year old. That's kind of how I'm thinking of this. That's the period I'm thinking of. Yeah. Just early college years. 
Yeah, early college, late high school, just kind of starting to think about theology, starting to think about, um, you know, philosophy a little bit. So I remember hearing clips of African-American preachers. And I I remember myself thinking, like, these guys are not very theologically sophisticated. Uh, They're being really emotional. I I tried to think of how I might have phrased this back then. Yeah. uh, And I'm not very good at that. I have a bad memory. But I it would have been something like this. I would have felt it seemed to me at that point that that tradition suffered from a lack of theological literacy or nuance or something like that. And one of the things I was worried about was how emotional the preachers would get and they would like rile up the congregation. And I think I thought that's, this is an untrustworthy way of teaching. You are, you're basically doing an Oprah, you know, kind of like a, I distrusted this emotional riling up thing. I thought we should probably be more calmly rational if we're going to be preaching. And I just had this kind of, yeah. You'd think if somebody is on the stage, not relying upon arguments or rationality, but rather tugging on the heartstrings, they might be on the verge of emotional manipulation. Yes. This emotional manipulation was definitely a worry of mine. And in, in my gut, I just kind of felt this unease about the whole thing. Like this is not right, but I don't want to be racist, but I can tell this is not best. You know what I mean? Kind of all that together. Uh, But really didn't have like, I didn't have much language for it. I just was like, this is weird. I certainly at that point, if I had had no choice, for instance, but to go to a black church, which of course in America is never the case, but had that been the case, I think I would have felt uneasy about having a black pastor. I think I, that sounds awful, but I think that I would have been like, well, I'm certainly going to look for the most calmly rational one I can find or something like that. Yeah. Wow. You are describing your past self though. Yes, I'm describing my past self. This is, uh, you know, 13, 15 years ago. So another way I could phrase this is that I would have said something like, the culture of the black church is the cause of these differences. The culture is the cause, right? So it something about being an emotional culture or being, uh, I don't know, a less rational culture and the, qual- the quality of the theology as a result of that emotional and less rational culture was such that it it became subpar. Something like that. Now, if someone had said to me, Dan, do you think this about the black church? I wouldn't have said yes. Like I would have (laughs) known that that sounded racist. But I do think that is basically what my view was. Um, And there's a a sociological way we might frame this, and we're going to come back to this. I believed that most or all causes especially in a free country like America where people are free to do what they want were individual causes. I didn't really understand system wide causes. So causation for how you are might go back to your parents or maybe your grandparents, but definitely no further than your grandparents. And mostly it was you, you and the people in your community making decisions. The way that a community was structured was a result of the cumulative decisions of the individuals within that community. Okay, now you've you've deconstructed, you're obviously setting up to how you deconstructed something related to this, but very recently, like the past year of your life, not not a decade ago. So what what happened to that idea up until this past year? This idea and this this viewpoint towards African-American churches and preachers. So... For about 10 or 12 years, I really didn't think about this issue. It was not on my radar. 
uh, I was thinking about the kind of questions that white theology nerds tend to think on, tend to think about, right? So Calvinism or not, I was thinking about hell a lot. I was thinking about the status of people of other religions before God. Yeah, really, yeah. if you think about it, I was thinking about individual status before God, individual souls. Uh, if God chooses individual souls for salvation or damnation, or if he doesn't, do individual souls go to hell? Just, you know, a lot of individualist stuff. That's fascinating to see the individualism emerge at all those levels. You're right. Yeah. And actually that just hit me right now as I was saying that. Uh, I wouldn't have even put that together when I was initially kind of thinking through this topic. Yeah. Uh, but one of, one of the corporate events that I thought a lot about was the Canaanite conquest narratives. And those are sort of, those have sort of been my personal theological linchpin. They, they have been the inflection point around which most things move for me. But two years ago, so we're still not yet to a year ago, but two years ago, I heard an episode of the liturgists and propaganda, the Christian rapper was on the show and he mentioned something about those Canaanite passages. I think that John, you and I talked about this just in person, not on the show. And he said something to the effect of, look, I know that some of you white people might read this and go, wow, what an awful God. Yeah. What a, what a, what a moral monster. But I read those and I think the Israelites have been enslaved and oppressed from day one. And these narratives are God through Moses coming to their aid and making things right by putting them back in the driver's seat. Like God is a conquering King, but he loves both the oppressor and the oppressed. And he's going to make the injustice, right? Yeah. I remember remember this. I remember him describing it almost like the way God regained justice for the Israelites was the same sort of passion with which you'd protect your children. Yeah. Like it might take some violence to do it, but it's a cause that we should see as good. And he was seeing it from a totally different perspective than you probably were, or even me or Michael and Mike on the podcast. Right. And, and one thing he said, cause I went back and listened to this again, as I was, you know, preparing for this conversation today. Yeah. And he, he, he says that, you know, one reason that I might have a problem with his interpretation could be related to the fact that I identify more with the Canaanites than the Israelites because my group has been in power. I, my group is the landowners. My group is not the immigrants or the refugees. Now, this was something to sink my teeth into because I had been thinking about these passages for 10 to 15 years and never heard this version of them. And I will say I was offended. I was, I was fairly offended. I certainly disagreed. And I was like, whoa, it's just sort of like startled me. I remember I was listening to it in the shower and I just was like, I paused like washing myself. Wow. So I was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is a fresh thought. Yeah. It got me thinking. I was like, first of all, who's this guy? Why is he like, how is he? Well, I don't want to say how is he so well-spoken? Of course, I would have always believed that some African-American theology students would be well-spoken, of course. But he really, he really knew his stuff. And if you listen to him in that interview, he comes across, I mean, his education just is uh, unmistakable. And I just was like, wow, well, he's from this other sort of uh, branch of, of Christian thinking. I have had no access to it. He presented something I had never heard of before. And he is like 
he's really like spitting some game here in general. And so what am I missing? That was kind of, that was the spark in a, in a screenwriting class. We would say this was the inciting incident for me to go back and look at this issue more, whether or not I end up agreeing with him about this particular interpretation of these passages, right? Yeah. So in the last year, I read a book that has helped me put a lot of language to all of this. And the book is called Divided by Faith. It came out in 2000. It was written by Michael O. Emerson and Christian Smith, two sociologists. And one of the metaphors they use in the book that has been so helpful is they talk about, um, they talk about a toolkit. Everybody sort of has a toolkit for explaining the world. And what that means is basically a person given their particular context, their upbringing, their family, whatever, their culture, they have certain tools that they can use to explain experiences that they have. And there is something about the white evangelical toolkit that is, that makes it the most individualistic toolkit of any groups in America. And they, they're able to actually measure this through survey data, right? And like through tons of, they did like, they conducted like 10,000, 10,000 surveys and like one or 2,000 in-person interviews. It's just like a ton of data. Well, yeah, Christian Smith and, is a very respected sociologist, even in the secular realm. This guy does serious work, so. Serious doesn't, work, doesn't surprise right. me. Right. And, uh, and Michael O. Emerson is now provost of North Park University in Chicago. So these, these are some serious, wow, yeah, there you go. S- serious workers, right? Serious thinkers. And they have these passages where they are talking about race with white evangelicals. And, and some of these white evangelicals, bless their hearts, they start to like short circuit when they're trying to get them to name systemic causes for things. Like they'll just kind of break down. They don't have the language for it. They'll say, well, I guess it's just a bunch of individuals. Like they just, they can't get to Jim Crow or sharecropping or redlining. They can't get to them. They don't think that way. And I read that book this, you know, past year thinking, well, I now, I now have the, this ability to think systemically. Yes. But then in, in reflecting back on my 20 year old self, I didn't have it then. You know what I'm saying? I think of myself as like, well, I went to college, I was liberal, but I still grew up in white evangelicalism. I still had those cultural limitations when I was younger, at least. And so basically the thread that I needed to unravel, you know, we talk about deconstruction as a thread. You, you start with something, you, you follow it down, you pull apart the sweater, right? For me, it was, did I direct my own life as an individual or did my parents direct it almost completely, right? Wow, that's the thread wow. that I'm going to, that's the thread that I, I went down. But I, I need to set up a little bit more data. So a couple things I learned from this book that helped me with that thread. There is an educational divide in black and white America because there is a socioeconomic divide. And this socioeconomic divide is actually pretty mind-blowing. So in 1997, the median wealth of a black family in America, wealth being defined as like bank account plus equity. So if you own your home, you have some equity in your home, all of your assets, right? Yeah. The median black family had 8% the wealth of the median white family 
in 97. That's just unbelievable. Now it's closer to 5%. It's worse? So it's gotten worse. It's oh worse. Oh my gosh. Yes. Now, if that was true in 97 and it's even worse today, go back 50 years. Go back to 1968. Go back to 1919. Go back to Jim Crow laws. Go back to sharecropping. One or two more generations, slavery, right? So right. There, <laughs> just seeing that, like seeing the stats of today brought that home. And actually, for those of you who listen to my other show, Depolarize, probably by the time this airs, my interview with Michael O. Emerson will be up on that feed. And we talk about this and all the stuff related to this book. But wow. so now, now I've got this thread, right? And I go, okay, did I direct my own life or did my parents direct my own life? Now, here is the detail about my life that I was thinking about. When I was 20 years old, I dropped out of college. I got in a van. I started a band and we toured and made albums for eight years. And yet, what if something had gone wrong? My parents had a big house, five bedrooms, plenty of room for me. Yeah. Uh, they made an upper middle class income. But beyond my parents, there were 10, 20, 30 families from our church group, from our friend group, from our neighborhood, who would have helped me in an emergency at the drop of the hat. Most of those families owned houses in the Bay Area of California that were worth well over a half a million dollars or a million dollars, right? Yeah. I don't just mean that we had families that loved us or loved me. I think a lot of people have that. What we had was money, financial resources. Support. Yeah. They had they worked at companies where I could have gotten a job if I needed one. If I had broken my wrist and couldn't play guitar for a year, I could get it. I mean, like just there was, I was not really risking much. What kind of a safety net of a, of a net of sort of social capital did I have such that to drop out of college, pursue my dreams for eight years, the best year of which, by the way, I made $25,000 yeah. <laughs> and that was supposed to last me two years. Cause we got an advance that year in, in what, like that was not a risk, was it? I mean, not really. It was a, It was like an emotional risk, but it was not a real risk. So now let me contrast this with the story that Propaganda told yeah. about how he sort of ended up going to seminary. So he's having this theological intellectual awakening. I don't remember how old he was, probably 20 or something, but he, maybe he's in his teens, and, and it's like common that these pastors have low levels of education in the black church. Why didn't they get more education? They had to work. They, their families were poor. And then what about his congregants, the, the pastor's congregants? They had to work. They were poor. If the pastor started talking like he just popped out of seminary, the way that a lot of Presbyterian pastors, for instance, talk, yeah. they're not going to know what he's talking about. His job as a pastor is to shepherd those people, right? And and to meet them where they are at. Yes. And so we bring back in that 8%, 5% median wealth and, and the education gap I'm sure is similar, right? And then what do you get? So let's get to this worry I had about being overly emotional. If a tradition gets started in a community that is poor and therefore less educated, 
And if a preacher is faithfully trying to shepherd their flock and those people are just as uneducated, how do you communicate the gospel? You don't do it through lectures. That would not make sense. It would not be appropriate. You do it through song, through action, through inspiring people with stories. So what's interesting is that as propaganda was getting older and getting more interested in theology, he found himself being drawn into these majority white environments because of the quality of the education, the intellectual rigor of the preaching. It was so attractive to him. And if you listen to him for two minutes, you, you, you can see why that is. But notice then that what's going on is a self-sorting. So even if you have these African-American young people who are getting really interested in theology and like that kind of intellectual thing, they'll leave that community and go to like a predominantly white school, for instance, wow. where they will read white theologians. And then if they come back, they will have to find maybe, you know, statistically a mixed race congregation, but they won't be able to serve at the congregation where their uncle was a pastor. Yeah. So they can't even bring back what they learned. So it's like a crazy, vicious cycle. Right. So when I was interviewing Michael Emerson for Depolarize, he he told this anecdote. He at one point had this uh, African-American Christian woman come up to him and ask him, Dr. Emerson, seriously, how do white Christians save money? And and Emerson was like, well, I don't know. What do you mean? I mean, you, you just don't spend it. And she's like, no, like there are so many people around me when I have a surplus who need help. They need resources. And how do I as a Christian not help them when I have the resources? And it's just like, broke his heart, right? It's just like shattered something in him to hear that. Totally. To to go, oh, yeah, I I mean like per, speaking for myself now, I have friends who could use some resources, but that does not describe my experience, what this woman described, right? Like we're all fine. We all have most of our Maslowian hierarchy met. And my help is like to give some time to somebody and go get a beer or show up and make them a meal if they come out of the hospital. But like, I'm under no, as far as I can tell, I'm under no immediate obligation to distribute my money to my community, right? Right. So back to propaganda. Guys like propaganda who are drawn to this intellectual rigor, they end up in these largely white institutions. What are they read? Who are they reading at these places? In his tradition, he went to a reform seminary. They're reading Dutch reformers, but pick any main seminary tradition in America. And it's mostly Europeans and white male Americans, right? That's who people are reading in the seminaries. Yep. Now, eventually he figures out that there are actually theologians who have combined these two worlds. They take scripture seriously. They're highly educated, but they also have a serious commitment to living with the poor and lifting up the poor. And we call this liberation theology, right? Yeah. And he asks himself, how come these other theological giants who basically are the backbone of of most seminary curriculums, how come these theological giants weren't clear enough in their theology to help stop slavery? How full was their picture of God? How full was their picture of the gospel? 
So then there's the other, another layer, which is there's not just a socioeconomic dimension, there is a racist dimension as well. And this is another thing I learned, not from Divided by Faith, but in the last year I interviewed historian Jamar Tisby, who runs uh, the, the Witness, which is an online publication and is the co-host of Pass the Mic podcast. And when I was interviewing him, he told me something I had not known before. I had not bothered to look it up. I had assumed that black denominations started for, I don't know, the same kind of reasons that white denominations started. You know, in Protestantism, that tends to be, we disagree with you, we're going to start our own denomination, right? That's how we do things. Not so. Most black denominations, John, you might know this, were started because the black people were not allowed to become pastors. (laughs) They would not ordain them. And they said, hey, yeah, hey, we're reading neither Jew nor Greek, neither free nor slave here. We're pretty sure we're allowed to preach. And so they started their own denominations. And now, I mean, I'm admitting my own ignorance that I'd never thought of this or read it before, but that blew my mind. That was another moment for me. So then you put that into the story we've been telling. So they start their own denominations so that they can shepherd their own flocks. Yeah, it was the only way in which they're able to if other entire denominations don't even ordain them. And it wasn't long ago that they did start to ordain them. It's as recent as interracial marriage finally becoming legal in all states. It was like, what was that, like the 40s or something? Yeah. It's like shockingly recent. The religious right started over a controversy with Bob Jones University in Florida where Bob Jones did not allow interracial dating as late as the 70s. Wow. Yes. Uh, And for instance, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, the largest seminary of the Southern Baptist denomination, they didn't even let black students in until 1951. And they didn't add any sort of black church studies program until the 70s. That's so recent. And they're in the South. They're in the South, right? Yeah. So anyway, all of this just kind of made me think, wow, I see how you put these things together and you end up with a system where black churches do sound and look and feel different. But rather than saying it is a result of, I don't know, their own individual cultural choices. It is clear to me how all of these larger factors have impacted that over time. And uh, basically, I'm, I'm still at the beginning of this. I wouldn't be surprised if, if at some point I, I do some do some work, some graduate work on this issue or, or somehow related to this issue because I, I find it fascinating uh, I find it really fascinating that I could have been so wrong about it for so long uh, with so little compunction. I, I'm not like a full-on liberation theologian or anything at this point. I haven't read much liberation theology. I really don't know about that. Um, but the most interesting thing has just been deraveling that sweater, seeing it from another perspective, trying to grasp uh, a larger picture and trying to now fit this new knowledge and understanding into my greater understanding of the gospel of a God of, of self-giving love um, and uh, really, really radical inclusion. Um, and yeah. Right. So if I was to summarize your deconstruction, I'm finding at least three points. Let me know if, if this aligns with the way you've conceived it. One point, one point of your deconstruction is taking apart 
this latent individualism that still resided in your mind regarding the way you viewed people in their situations. Yes. They were in their situation because of their individual choices, not because of some systemic process. Another stage of it is that you saw there was African-American theology that was extremely intelligent and it was completely different than maybe the preachers with which you were first acquainted. Found whole streams of it in denominations like liberation theology. But you also found, this is the third part, that the preachers of whom you were first suspicious actually were bringing something of extreme value. And you didn't see it because of your situation, based largely because of your socioeconomic and racial context. Yes. So this is the this is the thing about individualism in a free country. It leads to this assumption that there is basically a intellectual, economic, theological level playing field. And so if a bunch of black churches are doing X, it must be because they chose to or something like that. Right. Yeah. That that's so that's how it all sort of maybe one and three even tie together. So I was able to see, oh, these (laughs) these black men and women are being tremendously faithful to God and to their flocks. Like they're speaking appropriately to them such that they can draw them towards God's love in the way that is most reasonable for them to do. And, and it's led me to really sort of like a new, a new hope. Whereas I think that naively at 20 years old, my hope would have been, let's bring these other traditions up to our level or something like that. Now I think of it more like, oh, here's a tradition of people who have been loving each other, loving the poor, who have seen this from another angle, and we actually have a ton to learn from them. And let's let's actually flip this for a while and listen, because it's been imbalanced, and we are actually equals sitting across the table from each other, but we've been doing all the talking. So I've recently been through a particularly intense stage of deconstruction, of which I'd like to share two main aspects. So first is an experience that I went through that I now refer to as the deliverance from my self-deception. And this led to a stage of deconstruction. The second thing I want to share is an argument I developed against complex ideas that emerged out of doubts I started to have, and this led to even more deconstruction. So there's two main parts. But before I get into it, I just wanted to mention that we will all likely experience cycles of deconstruction and reconstruction throughout our entire lives. You just bore witness to this. I'm about to. And it's just fine. I think I actually explained this in a positive sense during the first episode of this podcast. And I I referred to this cycle as the critical and constructive tasks of philosophy. Do you remember this? Yeah, I think I remember that. Right. So... I just want to make sure for everyone listening that you understand this is all a healthy cycle that we should all embrace. Even if it begins to happen outside of our will, there's nevertheless always benefits we can derive from it. It's just completely natural and in fact ideal to experience healthy stages of deconstruction and reconstruction. Yeah, and I think that um, we should just acknowledge up top that right now we're catching you at a moment where there has been a lot of deconstruction, but... If you if we talk 10 years from now, you will have another perspective on what you're about to say today. Yeah. All right. So the first part in which I uncovered... Deliverance from your self-deception. What do you mean by that? 
So I don't know, Dan, if you're like this or if anyone listening is like this, but I usually operate in the world with two voices. One voice is this public voice with which I speak, but the other one is this interior critic, this interior voice that is scrutinizing my every word. And what's interesting about this is that the two voices, the two almost different stages of consciousness, don't always say the same thing. They don't agree. So right. I don't know if yeah. you've experienced this by way of internal conviction, but I found too often that there were things I would say out loud that somewhere deep inside I knew I didn't believe. Yeah. So uh, um, recently I experienced this, just a brief example. I was debate, not debating, but I was messaging with a former Christian, now kind of an agnostic. And I found myself making these sort of like old school arguments for theism that I had been making since I was 20. And then like almost reflexively, and then kind of thinking, I don't know if I need to say this in interiorly. Right. And thinking like, I, this isn't the reason I believe anymore. I don't know if this is the most, I don't know if this is actually the best way to explain myself or what I would consider to be the best argument anymore for theism. And so that's just, you know, and there was no harm, no foul. I'm sure he was fine reading those and thinking about them, but I just noticed the disconnect. It doesn't, you don't have to be a podcaster to have a public voice and an interior voice. Yeah, and you explain it really well. In the course of actually saying the things, you also doubt the things you're saying. That's that's the dynamic. As a verbal I'm processor, yeah. As a verbal processor, my wife would say, "I do that every day." Yeah, I you say have things to. Out loud. I remember that. Yeah, you you don't like to just sit in the corner and think. You I, you have to spit it all out and get it out there yeah. to be defeated or confirmed. Yeah. And that's how I figure out that I don't believe things is by talking about them, and then people go, "But what about this?" And I go, "Oh, duh, you're right. Yeah, I don't believe that." <laughs> Yeah, so it it reached a point where the words I was saying out loud were protested by the interior voice to an extent to which I couldn't really handle the ensuing cognitive dissonance anymore. Yeah. So I had undergone deconstruction against my will, but this is when I started actually trying to wrestle with the real particulars. So as I begin describing the argument itself, I need to share of what led to its development because this is how it emerged. When we launched the first season of Reconstruct, my already high number of really intense intellectual discussions each week rose even higher as a result. I was discussing and debating intellectual topics with friends and professors and colleagues, in person on the phone, over email, social media, whatever. And through this process, I began to notice a new pattern emerging in the course of intellectual disagreement. And this is it. When I had reached the point in a discussion when I had refuted someone's argument, didn't happen all the time, but let's say I've refuted their argument and they didn't have any ground left to stand on, they wouldn't admit defeat or try to move to my perspective or explore my position anymore. Instead, they would defer to an entire list of thinkers from whom they had derived their ideas. And right. they say, or even maybe hadn't, but someone told them yes. that they, and they th- might have. They would say something like, well, okay, I can't, I can't argue your rebuttals, but don't take my word for it. You have to read this thinker and you have to read that thinker if you really want to grapple with the argument in its most developed form. They'd say something along those lines. And the problem was that in almost every case, I thought they were right. But of course, I didn't have the time to read all the thinkers and all the books that everyone referenced. And yet I also realized that until I had read these other thinkers and refuted these other thinkers in the way I just had my present interlocutor, 
then the argument I thought I had overcome in this instance actually still stood unrefuted. Right. Like you could, if you're just talking to a buddy, uh, you could certainly win that argument. But if the main reason that that buddy believes something is because process theologian Philip Clayton wrote about it, well... (laughs) It's actually, you're not really in a position to refute Philip Clayton. And there's a lot of reasons for that. One is that he's been a working theologian for 30 years, yep. right? Yeah. And, and, and so you, you need a little bit of humility to say, ah, you're right. Uh, you are drawing from a tradition of which I don't have sufficient knowledge. And therefore, um, I could say that my view seems more reasonable to me than your view, but I actually haven't done the groundwork. The legwork. Yeah. Humility is the proper response in my point of view because this process always seemed really reasonable to me, even though it might seem to like somebody listening that I'm overreacting. But it really dawned upon me how reasonable it was when I placed myself in the position of those with whom I was speaking. Like imagine, Dan, imagine you're in this position and you've talked to someone all night long at, at Scotch Club or something and you two disagree about the relevance of psychology in moral decision-making. So this guy... Literally just had this conversation at the last... Okay, there you go. It's extremely (laughs) relevant. So this guy with whom you're speaking is rebutting every point you can make about how psychology is relevant to morality. And he's doing this for hours on end until you just throw your hands up and say, okay, man, well, if you really want to engage with my argument, then you need to read Jonathan Haidt and see... I think that's very reasonable for you to say. I mean, you can't be expected to repeat the full force of Jonathan Haidt's argument in one night. His books are like 500 pages long, and they've taken a decade to write. In this case, you'd probably find it really unreasonable if the person with whom you were speaking just said, no, I don't need to read this Jonathan Haidt guy. I've refuted your arguments, and that settles it. Hmm. Okay. That's That's why I found this to be so problematic, because... There really is a vast amount of intelligent scholars that demand our attention. Like you said, Philip Clayton, he has the credibility of being a theologian for decades on end. But these intelligent scholars, nevertheless, have equally valid yet disagreeing perspectives on many issues. Sure. So at this point, I had to question myself. Was I just doing this because I was burnt out? I mean, I had a lot of arguments, a lot of social media engagement. And I I wanted to make sure that I wasn't overreacting in generating this first sketch of an argument just because I had one too many discouraging discussions. And it was actually my wife who challenged me to generate a real solid argument for this skeptical position instead of relying on these you know past grievances or something. And so I did. You were you were actually part of this. I wrote up a quick five thousand word essay where I present this argument. And I started sharing it with people, with academic colleagues, with professors, with authors. And I've spoken to a lot of individuals. I'm at a troubling point where no one has yet refuted it. I mean, it doesn't mean that it's right. I've only spoken to, you know, a handful of people. And I have some opportunities coming up in which I can speak with some of my favorite philosophers in the world and have a chance to talk about this with them. And, you know, maybe they'll disabuse me of this notion completely, or maybe they'll surprisingly confirm aspects of it. But I want everyone listening to know that I am deconstructing, but I'm trying not to be hopeless. I'm trying to be serious. I'm trying to actually build something constructive out of it. I don't want my argument to be merely something that 
marshals in a greater amount of skepticism, but rather makes me a more responsible thinker that thinks about other perspectives and other disagreeing intellectual perspectives in a more serious and committed light. So I've, I've amassed like hundreds of articles on the subject at, at this point and several dozens of books and I'm trying to write something or put it together, explore it the way someone would research for a PhD dissertation or something. And I'm in the middle of it, so I'll have I'll be able to report back later. But that's where I am right now, and that's my attitude concerning the issue. Yeah, man. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, of course. Now you are going to give us an example of applying your principles to a particular topic. Yes. Which topic is that? So in an effort to live up to our own principles, I just want to share something I've reconstructed, you know, in, in the past year. And I have, I have deconstructed and reconstructed part of what I think constitutes sin. Formerly, I conceived of immoral acts as almost always sprouting from individual agency and comprised of a negative spiritual quality such that they were an offense to God. This is called the juridical model of sin, and it characterizes sin as the willful rebellion of free moral agents. And of course, I still believe, like many of us, that many immoral acts fit that description somehow. And though many acts fit this description, I think the more that I have studied disciplines such as neuroendocrinology, I have found that there is a host of biological and psychological factors and predispositions at play in the perpetration of immoral acts for which we can't be held fully responsible and therefore, which do not fit my earlier understanding of sin. There's too many efficacious factors in our environment that influence the way in which we carry out immoral acts for me to confidently conceive of them all as just an offense to God. Yeah, can you walk us through a couple of those factors? Yeah, I want to, I want to clarify what I mean when I say that our immoral acts aren't exactly the result of a free agency in every case. So let's say you do something aggressive right? So you snap at your wife or you throw something across the room, like whatever. And by the way, what I'm about to say comes from specifically my reading of Robert Sapolsky. He's a neuroendocrinologist. So you've done something aggressive and you could come up with a rational answer for why you committed this aggressive act such that we would all conclude it came about as a result of your free agency. However, here are some factors that likely influence your behavior, that could have influenced your behavior. If there was odorous, foul-smelling garbage in the room in which you committed the act, you'd be more likely to commit an aggressive act. Yeah. If you had high testosterone levels earlier during the day, then your aggression would be more likely. If you went through a difficult or traumatic time five or six months ago, as a result of which the neurons in your amygdala grew new connections, then yet again, you'd be more likely to commit an aggressive act. Yeah. If as a third trimester fetus, you were exposed to elevated levels of stress hormones, then aggression would be more likely. If your ancestors were nomadic pastoralists and they developed a culture of honor of which you're a descendant, then aggression would again be more likely. So ecosystems and neurophysiological influences, even from centuries in the past, can sometimes have present effects. What I learned is that there is simply much more going on than we'd ever think. I mean, and if you zoom out, like, well, you got pretty close with the nomadic ancestors. Th this links up very closely with what I talked about in my half of the program, right? Yep. The systemic causes of all these, you know, these giant waves of causation that people get swept up into. Yeah. So 
There are even recent experiments in transcranial magnetic stimulation that show when certain sectors of the brain are selected and stimulated, this process alone causes shifts in moral perspectives and decision-making. Yeah. So when someone appears to be, like, let's say, really lazy and they can't focus and they can't take initiative and we are therefore tempted to hold them accountable for the sin of sloth or something like that, they might actually just be burdened by cortical malfunctions that are causing this behavior. Sure, yeah. And there's there's no amount of discipline that will change that. There's no amount of prayer that will do anything. The normal responses we might actually have to someone who's in a sinful position that needs to move towards sanctification. Or when someone repeatedly acts inappropriately, it might actually be less an issue of their free agency and more a result of a neurochemical problem. Right. But they won't solve this pattern of sin by listening to more sermons. So one part is a deconstruction, reconstruction of the concept of sin. Another one is our response. Our response to this sort of sin would be something more akin to treating others with grace as victims of biology. Yes. Rather than condemning them, accusing them as offenders and rebels to God. So my basic point is that there's an extent to which I have come to think that certain neuroanatomical causal influences in a way become exculpatory. Individuals might not so much be offending God by their sin as exhibiting their brokenness because of sin. Right, right. So I've, I've deconstructed the juridical model of sin and reconstructed to a new model that is attempting to take seriously both the culpability that results from sin and the corruption that results from sin. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just from an autobiographical perspective, I think one reason that I have not gone through the process that you have gone through about sin is that my dad was a marriage family therapist my whole life. Yeah. So I've just always been very comfortable and it has seemed obvious to me that like, yeah, I mean, whatever we're doing spiritually, we also need to really take care of the body, the brain you know, all of this kind of stuff. I just was surrounded by stories of people who needed extra spiritual help, right? Or something like that. And um, so I've just never, I've never had to deconstruct and reconstruct this particular thinking, at least not since I was old enough to Of course, that, that, that's good, it. that's good. If you had more room than I did in your conception of sin to track the corruption that results from sin over mere culpability than... That's great. I would rather you be in that position. That's especially since I think that is a more balanced view to conceive of it. Yeah. I'm just saying instances in which someone has a repeated bad behavior. Let's say they're they're saturated in depression, and we might think this is sin of having no hope in God. You don't even listen to his promises. Right. The sin of like, despair yeah, or like, something. Yeah. Our response would be to accuse them and to bring about new plans by which they can pursue holiness and get out of their hopelessness into renewed hope. I'm just saying there are some people that actually need medication to have that happen. Oh, yeah. There's no amount of discussion that's yeah. going to do anything. They have a disease. So that that's why the juridical model can't accompany that. It can't say this thing that looks like sin is a disease and we need to respond to it differently. A different model is needed for that. And I'm convinced that that's right. Right. Well, dude, that was great, man. I was, Thank you for sharing all that, John. Thank you. I'm very happy that you and I are trying to successfully live up to our own principles. I hope everyone listening has enjoyed the healthy dose of deconstruction, however radical it might seem in our cases, but also are encouraged and inspired by the process of reconstruction, because that's the reason for which this podcast exists.
Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed that as much as we did. If you're looking for ways to help us out, please go to iTunes, subscribe to our podcast, and leave a review. It really only takes a minute, and we'd very much appreciate it. If you'd like to share any of your comments or questions, you can do so at our website, reconstructpodcast.com. Thanks again, and see you next time.